You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Happy Wednesday. This is a podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys through fascinating interviews. And if you are a big fan of the podcast, please help it grow by rating it on iTunes and whatever podcast listening device you use. Any review, any rating helps gain the trust of others to take a little chance and explore and listen on other interviews. Also, you can help the podcast grow by telling your close friends who might be struggling in their career journeys or are somewhat in the phase of exploring, they are looking for an adventure, then this might be the podcast for them. You'll be a great friend to them as well as a great friend to me. So those are some ways. And you can also subscribe to the OMD Ventures newsletter where I share all the happenings, pros, cons. Usually I try to only uh, share the wins because I want to remain an optimist in your life. But all that fun stuff is provided to the weekly newsletter subscribers. So subscribe to the newsletter at omdventures.com and there's all kinds of links that I'll take you there. Okay, so today's conversation is with Jackson Kahn. Jackson is the CEO of Kahn & Associates, a consulting firm that focuses on artificial intelligence, AI for short, and fintech. As a result, he is also a co-host of an AI podcast called Ask AI. And I reached out to Jackson after learning he had left his role as the head of marketing at Nudge.ai, which is a startup in Toronto, to live remotely in Colombia, where he was getting paid to write in-depth articles for companies. It, it was something that I didn't know was possible. And so when I read about it, I just immediately have to have him on the show. And so needless to say, I wasn't disappointed when, I, when we met up to have the interview as I learned about how Jackson had decided to not take a prestigious consulting offer early in his career, but he chose to take the startup path early. And we also talk about how why he left that to start his own consulting firm and discuss the early years of running his own service-based company, what it's been like, the lessons he's learned, what he would do if he had to do it all over again, and how he builds and strengthens relationships as he continuously evolves in his career. As someone who's been meeting a lot of fascinating people, the topic of building stronger relationships has been constantly on my mind, and so this was a really helpful conversation for me personally. And it's also been fun to learn about starting a service-based business as a solopreneur, really, because a lot of companies that come up on the media and also the many cool entrepreneurs I've interviewed on Accounted For have been venture-backed entrepreneurs themselves. And so it's always fascinating to see this side of the lens. And I really found this conversation with Jackson to be fascinating. And I think you'll find as much value out of it as I did as well. So without further ado, please tune into our conversation. everyone. Welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Jackson Kahn. Hey, Jackson. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Jackson here is the CEO of Kahn & Associates. And so, Jackson, the first question I'd like to ask you is, you you know, I looked at your background. You're a man of many fascinating careers. So something I've been struggling with as I've been going around working in different co-working spaces is really introducing yourself in sometimes even, you know, requiredly a concise way when you have so much you've done. So how do you introduce yourself when you first meet someone? <laughs> that's, a, that's a funny question. Yeah, so for me right now, uh, I mean, I, I do a couple of different things. One thing I'll say is I effectively run now a consulting firm. It's called Con Associates, uh, effectively myself and my business partners. And what we do is we help mostly technology companies, particularly in the verticals of artificial intelligence and finance. And we help them communicate better so that they can grow faster, so that they can bring incredible solutions to market. The other thing I do is I spend a lot of time actually working with nonprofit organizations, especially ones that are abroad. So what I'm enabling, my goal with, with our firm is we're actually enabling people who are interested in working with nonprofits to do so uh, by paying them well, uh, by paying them to do great work so that they can spend uh, their other time to directly offer service. So an example of that is I was working down in Columbia, I actually partnered with uh, an organization that is a strategic partner of the government of Canada to deliver services down to rural and remote communities there. 
And I was able to spend actually 15, 20 hours a week doing that on top of running the business. And so that's something I care about a lot. I mean, I'd say if I have twin interests, it's it's technology and international development. So I'm trying to do the best I can to bridge those two. Hmm. International development. Does that mean that you've had a childhood of like traveling around the world or? Not at all, actually. Um, you know, my, my parents, uh, we grew up in Mississauga, my brothers and I, and our, our parents, you know, never actually really took as much to travel until maybe the end of high school for me. Um, and I didn't even leave North America um, until I was, uh, yeah, until I was in university, actually. Okay. So, wow. um, so yeah, not a lot of traveling, actually, until I started to get into university. And then I think I, I went to England my first year. And then I, you know, I spent some time volunteering in East Africa. And post that, it, it really captured my interest. Uh, something that the world needs is, is to have people to effectively do knowledge exchange. I think, you know, there's a lot of criticisms of development in general, but I think what's most important is that we share what's working um, wherever that is in the world so we can help other people to do the same. Mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about that kind of knowledge exchange. Yeah, and so I think from my understanding, you studied global development at the University of Western Ontario. Yes. I'm curious, like, what what drew you to the global development side when you, uh, the reason I ask is like, so my, my child, I've traveled, I traveled a lot when I was young and for me, traveling was always like a big part and so I was always fascinated about like the world development and like Toronto is like the sixth city I've lived in thus, thus far and so that's always been a big part but I'm curious like for you growing up you know as you said you didn't get to leave like North America until like later on what fascinated you to go into like global development? I think I'd always wanted to see the world because I hadn't really had the chance when I was young. The other piece for me is I did know what I had which is that I was very very lucky. I grew up you know in a middle class stable family I uh, had both my parents had an amazing family, great brothers. I went to a good school and I've always really, really been proud of Canada. I've always wanted to represent Canada. Uh, I think that the world needs more Canada. Uh, that's one of my favorite sayings. I just think it, our country has so much to offer. And at a time, honestly, I mean, we can see now, like when the world is experiencing so much strife, uh, a lot of unsettled um, people, there's protests everywhere. I mean, Canada is one of the few countries that actually has a certain level of stability. Um, and, you know, and I think one of the most interesting statements of, of late is that you know, the American dream, as it's so often described, actually lives in Canada. Uh, and so what I what I really feel passionate about is, is you know, not taking my upbringing for granted. And wherever I go, trying to help bring a little bit more of Canada to wherever it is I am. And and also to learn from other people. I mean, there there's so much I don't know. And the more I travel, the more I speak to folks from different countries, the more I realize um, how much there is to, to learn and, and to grow together. Mm -hmm. And when I look at your professional kind of resume that's on LinkedIn, it, you know, you had a lot of different experiences in many startups, like you were in business development and product management, first at Paddle, which worked in like non-linear career technology. Then you were doing marketing at Influitive. So you also did like public relations there. You were then like the head of marketing at Nudge.ai until you left and started your own consulting company with your partners. And you also host a artificial intelligence podcast. But something it seemed that stuck out with me when you were probably in university is that you were, you know, the 20 under 20 in Canada and you'll it seems like you're very involved in a lot of education politics and technology like some kind of intersection there where you helped like create like an advisory council at the Globe and Mail and you're dead like I think it's called AstraZeneca you started some education and corporate social responsibility um advisory council there like given that kind of I think focus on what I could see as like being a mix of politics geopolitical stuff in the early years what made you go into the startup world yeah, I mean, so when, you know, when I was in university in school, I, I thought a lot about the kind of change I could make. And for me, I saw that, you know, we're now living in a world where like young people make up over fifty percent of the world's population. We're 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 facing some crises, such as being like one of the most indebted generations. We're facing the climate crisis. I think there's a lot of issues that young people can actually very markedly speak on. Um, and you know, I, I had maybe some impact on a couple of different organizations and and the government and whatnot, but. Now we look at young people really taking charge, for example, Greta Thunberg. Um, and I think that young people's voices are now really, really taking hold and are being seen as absolutely essential to global discourse and, and have unique perspectives on global issues. So that's something I've always cared about. But the other thing I've always cared about is how do we uh, empower people to effectively use their voices, to develop their careers, um, to take charge of whatever it is they're doing? Um, I think it's easy to use your voice when you grow up in privilege, for example, like myself. I think it's harder when you don't necessarily do that. Um, and so what I've always been fascinated by is technology. Um, you know, we live in an age where whether it's a mobile device or, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming onto the Internet newly, 
um, every day. I mean, that is empowering a lot of people, especially a lot of young people. So I've always held the interest, certainly in the pol political side, but also in the technological side to enable more people to have voices, uh, to build companies, to build organizations, whatever it is. And so when I was coming out of university, you know, I had a choice. I, I had, you know, a lot of my friends in business, for example, going into management consulting, going into finance. And, you know, I, you know, I, I almost kind of went down that path too. I even interviewed with the firms and, and got an offer um, and signed it actually. And at the last minute, I just realized it wasn't for me. I realized, you know, that I was in the middle of a huge amount of change. And I, what I saw was that the vessel, the primary vessel I could see doing that at the time. And again, this is, you know, this is, I guess, a decade, um, did the last decade or so that I really thought about it. It's, um, it's like technology. A lot of startups, I think, have been the ones driving innovation. Um, so I wanted to be a part of that, whatever form that took. Um, for me, at first, that was like a career technology startup, uh, which I which I helped start with a few friends. Uh, and then I moved into more like, I guess what I saw is the tools that enabled people to create movements. So I moved into like what, what was called like an advocate mobilization platform, helped everything from like companies to organizations to to mobilize people around a cause, uh, to mobilize people around a, a brand. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then I also thought a lot about relationships, right? How can technology help build relationships? Uh, we've seen the fallout of social networks in terms of disinformation campaigns and things like that. Uh, most recently, my last full-time role was at Nudge, which actually helps measure the relationship strength between people. And I've always been interested in how can different groups build and maintain relationships over time, wherever they're coming from, whatever sector they're from. So that's something I care about a lot. And, you know, I guess if you can follow that intellectual thread, like I've always have been interested in the relationships between different groups of people, how people can become more powerful wherever they are in their communities. Um, and and, and I, for me, I want to both create the tools as well as the movements to, to help bring people uh, to be stronger in whatever they've decided to pursue. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this was kind of by design where you and you know, one, one of the first startups you worked at was a career technology company that focuses on non-linear careers. But how did you, what kind of system did you implement to kind of navigate your way through these different roles until eventually you got to the point of starting your own um, consulting company? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly easier to connect the dots looking backwards. I mean, at the time, I will honestly admit, sometimes I had no idea. Um, you know, when I started off at Paddle, we... We were making some really cool products that, you know, I, for example, I, I spent basically six months like taking like every personality test there is to take out there. That was one of my, my product development jobs. Um, and then, you know, that test is actually still online, which is kind of cool. And there's one on motivations, which, which actually the, the outcome for me was that I realized that I'm, I'm somebody who wants to make change. Um, and that's, that's just like a core part of my being. Um, and I'm also, I learned from another test I took, I'm also very adaptable. And so for me, like the nonlinearity has always just seemed like a state of being. Like I, I, I truly believe that people can bridge experiences from different disciplines, different functions, different sectors, whether it's like public or private, um, or you know, governments or nonprofits. And and the more that you can blend those experiences and pull different pieces into new experiences, uh, into new jobs, into new occupations, I think the more you actually have the chance to innovate because uh, you're just bringing different knowledge. Uh, and so, and we actually see, you know, even in scientific fields, for example, research fields, like if you work at the intersections, you can often have more interesting discoveries. So uh, I really believe in that as, 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 you know, as I guess as a philosophy of career development, but more tactically, like what I, what I did when I was at those different points was I thought these are pivot points for me, each, each kind of, you know, almost like people talk about pivoting a startup, the business model, the product market fit. Like for me, it's like, well, what is on my next pivot point? Like, how do I get closer? How do I focus on the experiment of me? iterate to the next version? How do I, you know, become Jackson 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, whatever that is. And it might be totally different. It might be like a different specialization or set of specializations. Um, it might just be a different way of branding myself. Like there's different ways to, in a sense, change your career. It doesn't always mean you need to take a new job. Um, so that, that's, that's something I really promote is how do you have an iterative experimental form of career development? How do you experiment across different sectors? And that's how you become, become more nonlinear, not just signing up to be, you know, a tier kind of early tier account representative at this company and slowly making your way up for 30 years. Like that just doesn't and won't happen for our generation. So we need to learn to be more adaptable, to take chances, um, to take lateral moves and not just vertical moves up, up the career ladder. Mm -hmm. And as you transitioned over for me, so my career journey is like, I started out in accounting, iterated into consulting, did a whole bunch of stuff there and mm -hmm. then became an investor and after that, I just started a media platform. And I found, although each iteration was challenging with its own obstacles and stuff, 
the challenge of starting your own thing I found to be a very difficult um, process. I'm just curious, how did you navigate your way through to kind of starting your own consulting company? Oh man, honestly, like, again, there's no clear path. Like I actually wrote a Facebook post recently, which was, so in 2018, I had a really hard, difficult year in my life. Um, though I was uh, the partner I had at the time we separated, uh, moved out of the apartment that we had. Uh, my parents got divorced. My two grandparents passed away. This was all in like a period of a few months. Oh, so it was, wow. it was a lot, right? So I basically went through a big, you know, emotionally difficult time in my life. And also just logistically, like moving your whole life around is, is hard. Um, and, and all, all your possessions and all your things and, you know, attending different, um, different services and whatnot. It was a hard period of my life. And what I started to think about was, you know, I, I have spent now several years working in technology. I feel confident about what I've done. I feel like I've made good relationships, had good mentors. What would it look like if I if I made a lateral move? What would it look like? These were the questions I was asking myself. What would it look like if I changed things up? Um, again, I've always wanted to live and spend time internationally. And so what I decided to do was over a period of months to transition out of a job I loved, um, told the team and worked towards that goal. And I decided that I was going to go live down in Latin America. I'd never been there before. I'd always wanted to go there. Um, I've always wanted to learn a new language too. And given some background in French, Spanish was a natural choice. And I've always been interested to to kind of go, I guess, south. Um, you know, it's on the same time zone in a lot of respects uh, where I wanted to go and, and be down in Colombia. But it was um, was different. It was very, very different. But to make that happen, what did I have to do? Well, I had to start my own company so that I could start working remotely, so that I could start working for clients down there. I knew I didn't want to have all my time occupied by work because I wanted to leave some time open to, to volunteer with organizations down there to take Spanish lessons. So I started my own firm. And when I left uh, last year, I actually left pretty much around the time last year, this time last year, I had one client who I was doing just a bit of work for. I didn't really know what I was going to do, what I was going to specialize in. I uh, thought it was marketing consulting, ended up becoming a lot of freelance writing. Um, and now, you know, the business, a year later, I guess the business has done quite well. I was able to do a lot of what I wanted. I learned not half bad Spanish. I, I worked for international development organizations. I traveled a lot. So, you know, in a lot of respects, it was a successful year. But the truth is, when I thought about it, like, all I knew was like, I just need to change my situation. But I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I just kind of made what I would call iterative improvements. It was like, okay, I have one client. How do I at least get two? How do I get three? Spanish. Well, could I do two weeks of lessons and just see how that goes? And then that became a few months. Uh, and with international development, like it started with me just volunteering with an organization. And eventually... It turned into okay. Well, what if what if you come in and contract for us for a bit and and do some work for us and, and it became a deeper engagement and like all of those were just small steps along a path. I didn't exactly know where it was going to go. Hmm. I'm actually fascinated by the, you. You mentioned how the previous job when you were at Nudge is a job that you actually enjoyed, you liked. Yeah. That you decided to leave and for me investing was supposed to be the dream job like I'd, mm -hmm. I'd always been a huge fan of Buffett and Charlie Munger and that's what I wanted to be and I still tell people like I still love investing I still do it mm -hmm. but I left because I wanted something more from it um, but I found that to be very hard for me a lot of my friends to kind of understand really like don't you just only leave jobs that you dislike they everyone assumes that you dislike each thing that previous thing that you left and I'm wondering for you what was that conversation like internally as well as like when you try to like think about mm -hmm. it from the journey of, you know, the act of leaving something that you like? Yeah. You know, I think especially in North America, we have this fallacy around comfort. So like happiness being comfort. So you imagine, okay, I've got a, I've got a house, I've got a partner, I've got kids, I've paid off my mortgage. I've got a good job. Like that's happiness. Um, and I mean, I think a lot of those things could contribute to happiness, certainly, um, but necessarily fulfillment. I'm not, I'm not sure. Right. And I, and I think one of the, the realizations I've had, and, you know, I have very dear family and friends, but sometimes your friends and family may not necessarily want in some ways, what, like what you might consider best for you. They might just want what, what's good for you. Right. They want, they want you to be safe. They want you to be comfortable. They want you to be happy, but that you taking a chance, you going to, I don't know, a more dangerous country, you taking an uncertain path, you starting a business, you know, doing a new job. Like these are all more uncertain things, which may not necessarily lead you to happiness. In fact, they could lead you to a lot of sadness or pain. Um, and so they won't necessarily advise you to do those things. Um, in fact, they might be crazy too sometimes. Um, but that being said, I mean, there is something to be said for 
building trust in yourself um, for taking those kinds of uncertain decisions um, for, you know, holding the people close who will support you no matter what. Um, and sometimes you're not going to convince everybody that's the right move, but you don't have to, right? I mean, it's important. What's ultimately important is that you have the confidence to know that if you take a step, an uncertain step, that the worst case is, especially if you're from a country like Canada, even if you hit rock bottom, you have back here free healthcare, free education, a lot of free services, a lot of help and support. I mean, we we have the opportunity in so many ways. And so I would say to someone, if you're doubting yourself or on the fence to start a business or to do something new or to take a chance, like just do it. Mm-hmm. The worst case is you have a lot to fall back on. Um, and for me, like, you know, I know my mom was in first jazz when I told her I wanted to move down to Columbia. Uh, but, you know, through, through, through a lot of time and conversations, you know, realized that it was the right thing for me to do because I felt in my core that it was something, a change I needed to make. And so, you know, something's not always going to make sense. It's not always necessarily going to make sense to leave a good job, to, to leave a home that you have, but it may feel like the right thing to do. Um, and you should validate that. You should, you should question your assumptions. You should wonder if it's, it's a want or if it's a need for you. Uh, for me, it ended up being a need. For me, following through that ended up being the best decision that I've ever made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said you started out with one client. How did you first get that one client? Honestly, man, completely random. I had a guy who I did had a random conversation with like two years prior, reach out to me out of the blue three months before I left the country and said, hey, I'm working on this new business. And it was like a, it was a writing business for a certain type of client. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And I said, I'm actually about to go and, and move away so I could take on some extra work. So I got really lucky um, to have a first client. You know, but your first client doesn't necessarily last forever. We did a lot of good work together, you know, thousands of dollars of great work together. A lot of clients worked on together. Uh, but the tone of the business changed. Um, and, you know, him and I still talk a lot. But I think what I realized is I wanted to go deeper on projects that I was truly interested in. For example, like I worked in AI in my past role and in sort of the AI field. I wanted to go deeper on those types of clients. Um, I've also always been really interested in fintech. So those are the kind of two verticals I've decided to particularly specialize in. Uh, our, our company still does serve some other clients, but I've always wanted to learn more about those areas. They're some of the most transformative areas that I see in tech. So then once I made that niche almost in my mind, I started going after clients who fit that kind of profile. Mm. Um, and I love working with startups, but I also decided for my earlier clients, one of the focuses for me was just having clients that I knew weren't necessarily going to run out of money, weren't going to um, you know, change dramatically from time to time. So I did aim for a bit bigger companies, usually companies with like maybe 200, 300 employees. Um, that can at least ensure like I've got some stability. And now that I have a few of those clients, I'm able to continue doing one of the things I love, which is to work with smaller companies and startups to help them, you know, get ahead as well. Mm. How did you like actually come down? Like, so as I've been building up my own platform and as I'm doing projects on starting my own services, I mean, there's a lot of literature on like you should niche down. And there's a lot of things where I found as I've been doing this for like, the last year and a half where I understand it conceptually but it's taken me time to actually understand it after making many mistakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we, what, what kind of, um, you know, maybe there's specific situations or insights that kind of led you down to like, okay, I'm, I've got to go into deeper into AI and I'm going to get the bigger client. Yeah. I think one of the insights was, I remember I had a situation where like two or three of my clients all at once, like somebody, so one of the people I was working with left one company Another company like was an early stage startup and basically ran out of money. And then another company um, hired a full-time person, hmm. right? So basically had three different clients, these three different situations, which just meant work was either on hold or just there wasn't really a future for it at those respective companies. And that all happened really fast. And what I thought about was, well, I don't want to get stuck in this situation again because I basically didn't make money for a month. So, and I had to rely on some savings ahead. So what I did instead was I thought about, well, which clients do I not predict this happening to? And for me, it was like very fast growing, better funded AI and fintech companies where it seemed like even if they had a full-time writer, there was so much going on. There's so much changing that they always had some extra capacity that they needed to continue to want to work on new projects. The second piece was having money run. It wasn't necessarily a problem. And the third was, I mean, even if they have a full-time team, like, they may want some more specialized knowledge and I have some good experience writing for AI and there's not, I think a lot of experienced AI and FinTech writers, for example, out there because they're just newer, newer fields. So I decided to double down on that. And so far it's, it's been really, really good for the business. So I think sometimes it was like, I had one AI client, but it's like, I looked at that and I was like, well, maybe I should just double down on what's working. Yeah. Right. And so I did. 
and so far it's working out really well. <laughs> yeah. On the writing side, I'm very curious, like how how did that writing um, come up? I ask because it's also once again, as I said earlier, as a Kevin, this is very selfish. But um, you know, my platform, I've been writing an essay mainly on like the theme of self mastery, human performance for the last. I think I have like 85, 88 articles that are like a thousand, wow. two thousand words. And I've learned about like Medium. Medium started like curating and I'm slowly getting paid. And it's gone, it's inseminated the idea of could I actually get paid to write stuff? if I Even if I don't write a book. And I know you've written like more than a thousand, like hundred thousand words or something. Writing for so many different clients, you have all these super long machine learning topics on Springboard. You've also written like an ebook. Like, how did it all like get started for you? Honestly, man, it started by writing. It sounds so stupid, but it's like I started writing a few articles here and there, and then suddenly those snowballed, right? Like that turned into okay, well, what if we write a longer ebook? Okay, what if we write a twenty-five thousand word ebook? You know, and or what if we start doing big series? Or uh, I was talking to a client today about you know doing thirty articles in a row. It's kind of like you know this. It all kind of picks up. I think once like if you make a good name for yourself, people like what you write. Um, I think the other piece was socializing. The writing. So I, I typically try and post and share my best pieces. And I found I was getting a lot of good feedback. So I'd share things on LinkedIn, for example, and get, you know, tens of thousands of views on a single article. So I was like, okay, well, maybe this is hitting a court with people. Um, and I, I, you know, it's, I don't think I write just to get, you know, likes and audience, you know, feedback, but for me, it was okay. It was at least some validation that this is really interesting content. And that's when I decided to double down on what I would call, you know, very human language for machine topics, <laughs> right? It's people, people still want to read in a way that's enjoyable. They don't just want to read all this technical jargon. I think that's sometimes where highly technological companies can struggle, right? Maybe they've got engineers writing blogs or they, you know, they, 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 they're so excited to talk about these amazing products they're creating, but people don't love salesy content. They don't love when they feel like they're being sold to, being marketed to. What they rather feel like is, you know, to have a conversation or to feel like a friend is talking to them. And so the the balance you want to hit is informative, but friendly, um, smart, you know, but accessible. So striking that balance takes some practice, but really, you know, when you talk about, yeah, you know, I, I calculate, I end up writing over a hundred thousand words for uh, either myself or different clients this year. That just took like writing either every day, every week. Uh, I usually write every day. I also read every day. For me, that's really important. Um, you've got to keep that literacy up, that, that fluency, that, that just ease with language um, and with different voices. Uh, that makes it all a lot easier. And how does how would one get started in terms of if, if you actually wanted to try to build a part of your career as a writer? How did you get started with that? So I think where I got started was, you know, even even back in university, I started even emailing newspapers sometimes. And I remember you have to be very persistent, but I remember one time I, I wanted to write for the Globe and Mail. This was a goal I had when I was like 18 or 19. And I emailed and called an editor like like 11 times in total within the span of like three days. And I was incredibly persistent. I'm not necessarily saying this strategy is going to work again, but I, I basically just said, this is a super important topic right now. And it will be for the next three days. I think it's critical that we print this article. And here's my outline for it. And eventually, you know, she was kind of like, who is this kid? Um, and and she, I mean, she eventually got back to me. It's okay. Give me 500 words by tomorrow. And I stayed up all night and wrote the whole thing and edited it 50 times. And then I started writing, you know, I got, I got that published. I wrote a few more for them, started writing for other publications. I got more involved in, um, in, you know, in, with my nonprofit at the time I was working with. And then, you know, post school, post that I was, um, when I started working as a marketer, um, that's also when I started writing more. Uh, I think, you know, writing more as a marketer is you start writing a lot more business type language, uh, which, which helps you produce content fast. Um, so that was where I, where I really got started. Um, but I'd say where I got almost into the daily practice of it has only really been this past year or so. Hmm. Um, because for me, it took writing every day or every week, um, choosing intentionally like very impactful topics, interesting topics. And also, honestly, like not just writing to market a product or service, but to write to just engage people's minds. Uh, I think when you like the writing that you're putting out, I think it's it's a lot easier to write. Um, it can be easier to be more biased. So that's why I think I, I typically prefer like to write articles that have a strong research basis, like lots of links and 
and lots of lots of things to follow up on. So that's that's my perspective. I don't know if that's a perfect perspective, but it is like eventually you kind of just got to start writing, whether um, whatever capacity that's in, and and you can slowly improve over time. I think one thing is that everybody thinks they can write, they really do. And I will say that I've got a long ways to go to become you know the kind of writer I, I ultimately want to be. But uh, I think a lot of practices may be better, and I think for a lot of people they under undervalue it. So I also, what I do now is the clients I work with, I only work with clients who value writing. Um, I actually decided to increase my prices um, for this year, um, not just to make money, but honestly, because it kind of does separate the people who are willing to uh, pay uh, for very high quality work versus just churning stuff out like a, like a machine. Mm -hmm. um, and I would rather work on more targeted projects and honestly have less work that's higher paying that's high quality. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's a better, better way to go. And honestly, for companies, like even if you're just trying to build links for like, let's say SEO, like that's a better way to go as well. Like that's how Google cares about content is if people find it valuable, if, if it's, if it's worth reading. So whether you're trying to get leads for your business or you're just trying to actually enjoy what you're writing and convert more people, like it pays to invest in quality. Mm -hmm. In terms of starting or I guess like starting and slowly trying to build momentum for the consulting business i found that there's always this kind of the chicken or the egg problem where some clients are like well have you done this with a hundred other people and like and you go, no but i've written on all this stuff that seems to get the attention and i've done all these other things that can translate to it and then many times it's really hard to close that and it sometimes leads to like an internal like imposter syndrome question of can i actually do this doesn't seem like the market is responding and then you try to constantly try to pivot to like different markets but i'd be curious for you like how did you how did you navigate through all that insane persistence like i i don't know how to say it other than that but like i have sometimes sent dozens of emails to a single person over this past year to get their business over time there's one uh head of marketing who is at a very well-known ai company and, and i'm looking forward to meeting her um, but you know, it was, it, it's been tricky to get a meeting with her and I, and I do respect her for managing her time that well, but I, I, you know, I, I definitely pursued, I've been very persistent. Um, like every time I've been back in Toronto, um, anytime that we've had a chance to find a meeting, I'm on her LinkedIn posts. I make sure to comment. I make sure to read them. I think it just takes time and persistence. I'm very hopeful. I think we'd be a great fit to work together, um, uh, with other clients too. Sometimes it's been like, making time to go to a different city, making making it convenient to go and meet with that client, making time for them. Sometimes that's meant sacrifices personally with friends or family just to make clients work. But the thing is, I think once you get a client, once you do some good work for them, and once you know, once you quote unquote made it with them, things become easier. You establish that basis of trust. So I'd say go as hard as you can until you get that first deal. Do a really, really great job in it and hopefully things ease up after that. You can not that you can go and relax and <laughs> forget on quality, but just you know, maybe you won't be so tense and you can just really just put out your best work. You have a trusted relationship with the client. That that makes everything easier. Mm -hmm. um, but to get the first client, like, yeah, you've got to work for it. You've got to hustle. You've got to, you've got to show yourself, show them that, that it's worth it. And when I say hustle, I, I do want to, I don't want to, I don't mean like spam them to be clear. Like I'm very persistent, but when I talk about 30 emails over a year, it's like, you know, that's, that's emailing someone every 10 days or so. Right. Um, and and also, if they're not responding at all to your emails, maybe stop because you're probably pissing them off. But if they're just saying, oh, yeah, well, maybe it's not the exact time, but like send me another note or like let's keep in touch or maybe let's have a call or yeah, okay, that is interesting. Like if there's still a conversation, I think there's no harm being persistent. If someone shut you down, then yeah, like don't hustle anymore because you're just going to make them angry and get a restraining order. But sometimes it just takes time. I remember one time I was trying to get a keynote speaking spot for my CEO at Influitive. And I have an email chain with the organizer, like a hundred emails long over summer months. And we ended up getting my CEO, the closing keynote. And like, sometimes that's just what it takes to get a publishing spot or to get the right spot. And and I think if there's one thing I'm good at, it's tenacity, uh, respectful tenacity, I like to call it. Yeah. Hmm. Do you still go through like things like imposter syndrome or like all the time, man? Yeah, I should have touched on that, but that. I mean, that hits me all the time. Sometimes people are like, oh, like so cool that you're like traveling around the world, running your business. And I'm like, sometimes I wake up and I lose my mind. Like this, this is hard stuff, right? And also it's not easy to be away from your friends and family. And sometimes, you know, you think you've learned a language and then you walk into a room and you're like, 
I have no idea what people say, right? And you just have to check yourself and, and just realize, you know, sometimes if you just relax, you just you can just do it. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, yeah, that imposter syndrome block is hard. Um, and I think it often intersects with burnout. If you're feeling burnout from working too hard or, you know, any number of things, not taking care of your health, it's much easier to feel imposter syndrome. You're just going to feel like, you know what, I can't really do this. Even if you've done it before, sometimes you'll feel like you can't do this. And so it, you got to maintain yourself. You got to constantly remind yourself. I, I have big reminders. And sometimes I have a note that I look at. It's like, to look at, if sad. And I have a bunch of reasons that I shouldn't be. Um, and further than that, I have a bunch of reasons I should be proud. You know, small things I've done, things I've done on my bucket list, things I've checked off. And sometimes you got to just remind yourself that you are trying to do as much as you can. I think another thing, and it's connected to imposter syndrome in the context of like regret or things you've recently done, but it's, I like to give myself the benefit of the doubt, which is that at any given time, I'd like to think that I was, I was making a decision with the best of my information and ability at the time. Sometimes, obviously, like anybody, I'm going to make big mistakes, but generally I'm like, you know what? I could have done better, but at that time I really tried to do the best thing I could, right? Give yourself that benefit because most people, you do do that. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's how you can avoid some of the imposter syndrome in the present and regret in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, as you can tell from the sign behind you, the audience can't see it, but I have the giant congrats sign there and I I use it as a way to like stare because my... Keep it up. Yeah. My partner got it for me when I started the podcast a year and a half year ago year and a half ago and it's still there just to remind me when things get a little tough that's awesome i'm curious on when what's your stance on um doing like consulting work for free i understand that you know you work i think like 50 percent of your time is with like a lot of not pro bono like not for profits as well i don't know if you do them for free but there's a lot of like literature on you know doing stuff for free early on like that's what i've been doing um in terms of doing my own like coaching work as well but i'm curious on your perspective yeah, I mean, I, I saw, so you know, occasionally I take on pro bono clients, but usually with nonprofits, I still charge them a nominal amount. Um, I do have, I do do pro bono work from time to time. I like to help a lot of organizations. I think when you're a consultant, it's a bit harder sometimes, actually, than when you have a full-time job because you, you are charging often by the hour or by project. Um, I do, I do care about that a lot. I think where I'd, where I'd answer your question is more on free work in terms of, you know, paid clients, like. I don't really do work for free. Um, but what do I not? Here's what I tell you is, you know, I, I charge for the work I do. What I don't really charge for is, is like non-work. I don't charge for having meetings. I don't really charge for phone calls. Um, I think that's kind of garbage is you have a half an hour call with someone and you're like, all right, that's going to be a hundred dollars. Like, you know, I haven't provided necessarily provided value there. Um, if it's explicitly like, Hey, like you're looking to consult me on my knowledge about this thing within your business, then maybe, you know, we can charge for that. But it's like, let's just talk about a project. Let's ideate. Let's, you know, whiteboard together. Like don't charge for that kind of stuff. Don't, don't make a potential client or a current client jittery about mm-hmm. every time they, they, they should feel you want them to talk to you more. You want them to feel like you can just go back and forth because that's how you're going to get bigger projects is if they feel like you're invested in the relationship. I think some part of that, you know, I guess you call it free time or free work in a way, but I don't think meetings, I don't think calls necessarily are, um, also, if someone ever asks you, could you take a quick look at this? Like, as long as I'm not doing it every day, like, just do it. Because as long as it doesn't take you more than, you know, several minutes or even half an hour, like, it's worth it because you might lose technically, you know, whatever, $100, $200 of your time, but you might win $20,000 in a new deal, right? So, yeah, be giving. Sometimes you have to give to get. Um, and sometimes, like, just give. Like, you never sometimes know when something's going to come back to you. Like, I... I've had so many random occurrences where like, because I was nice to somebody at one point or helped them out, it came back to me. For example, like I'm actually meeting with a client I just signed a deal with um, yesterday and a big deal. And I'm meeting with uh, their team tomorrow. And one of the guys in the room, I realized that one time I'd made time to have a coffee with him when he was looking for a job and now he's working there. So just a great relationship to have at that company, right? Like someone who, who already, you know, probably appreciates me and thinks I'm a good guy because I, I spent time out of my day to, to do that with him. And I did that without expecting anything in return. Right. And now he's probably there as a champion uh, at the account for me, knowing that I, you know, I, I'm going to be working with him. It's, it's a good feeling. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you find that a lot of your clients come from such like referrals from the past or do you find that you have totally. to use that persistence? And find Sometimes it's some random dinner I had with a group of people a few years ago. Sometimes it's an old colleague. Sometimes it's an old friend. Um, I had a random 
uh, you know, head of marketing at a, a U.S. based technology company, um, emailed me yesterday and just said, you know what? I somebody referred me to you. I've never heard of this guy. I I don't know even who referred me to. I'm probably going to ask, but some if you if you put good out in the world, people usually throw it back to you. So I think um, it's just worth putting out good energy. You don't have to be overly promotional about yourself. I think sometimes you just have to talk about, you know, yeah, who you are, what are you doing, what do you care about, and and people resonate with that. Hmm. So if you were to describe, let's say, the kind of activities you do, if you had to like kind of categorize where you spend your time into like buckets, for example, mm-hmm. how would you, how how does that look for you? Yeah, I mean, typically, typical day at the business, I probably spend forty to fifty percent of the day writing. I probably spend twenty percent of the day either working on new business, like closing deals. Um, I, I'd include like paperwork, like in that, like invoicing um, and, and, and proposal writing. And I probably spent 30% of the day, like this sounds bad, but like either on LinkedIn or on email. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to people hmm. um, or and I'd also just include phone calls and that, but like I check in on people a lot. I have a lot of catch ups. Um, yeah. For me, it's, it's really important. I think it's really important for your brand. I think it's really important to maintain relationships. I mean, I also spend probably an inordinate amount of time on email, given that I'm I'm living abroad right now and most of my family and friends are are here. Um, but I um yeah, I mean, I really think for me, like I I wouldn't be yeah surprised if I spent thirty percent of the day on relationship building. Wow, whatever it is, whatever day it is. Is what system? Do you have like a system that you use um, as you think about it? I I ask because. I find that it's a very Azure relationship group just grows and you meet more and more fascinating people. It's, I found it a constant challenge to try to meet as many people and maintain as many like great relationships. Are there like rules that you follow? Yeah, I mean, I uh, so what I try and do, I don't know if you've heard of the number Dunbar's number. Yeah. So, yeah so I'll the just explain for the audience. So it's you can only max or in a village and, you know, with your 150 relationships, right? So when I was in Nudge AI, this is what we cared about, right? Was the amount of relationships you can have. And, and you, you know, your net worth is almost your amount of relationships, strong relationships. So my goal when I was in Nudge was to double my Dunbar number because that prediction was made without real technology, right? So I was thinking, well, with technology, could I main, maintain 300 strong relationships with different people? And I reached that number, which was cool. Um, I have pulled it down a bit because I've realized actually that Maybe Dunbar was actually right, or at least kind of right. Um, I brought it down to more like 200. Um, and by strong relationships, I mean, are you in touch with your main set of contacts like at least once every three, two to three months? Could be a quick email. It could be a phone call. And then what I do is I bring it down to like almost my top 50 people and then my top 15 people. And it's like my top 15 people, I, I want to talk to them almost every day. My top 50 people, I probably want to talk to them every two, three weeks. Mm. And my top 200, I probably want to talk to you every two, three months. And I often use Nudge to just track, well, who am I losing touch with? Um, how strong are my relationships? And I think that's really important. And yeah, just in what's in my head, like I have actively tried to not keep in close touch with quite as many people. I have tried to focus my efforts on those, especially those top 15 um, top 50 you, you never know I think it's those people who can often make a real difference but still even people in the periphery like there's simultaneously another theory which is quite interesting it's the theory of weak ties right. you heard of this yeah so I mean I'll explain just explain to the audience but the idea is uh, I think it's tell, tell me if I'm wrong I think it's Granville or something from Stanford researcher who came up with that theory which was the idea that people effectively on the edge of your network can actually often be more influential to positive outcomes in your life. For example, if you're looking for a job, more people found jobs through people on the edges of their network rather than people who are close to them. Because even though you'd think, oh yeah, my buddy, he's going to help me out. He's going to give me a job. But it's people on the edges of your network who are exposed to other people, other jobs. Like they're not in your same bubble. Uh, There's not as much overlap. And so occasionally cultivating the relationships at the edges of your, you know, your relationship web, so to speak, it's still valuable because those people may hear of things you don't mm-hmm. or that your friend circle doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely something that's constantly in my purview as I'm trying to like become better at it and work at it. Um, I'm curious, like what, if you, if you had to, then you think about like, you had to start over, 
you got to start over and like redesign your consulting company again. What kind of major learnings um, would you implement to maybe change the tactics you used, or would you just is there nothing you change? If I was to start over again, I would have as soon as I got three clients, I would have kept going, even though I thought at the time I was like, okay, I want to get my first goal is to get three clients and to just do really well with them for a long period of time. But I think I should have just kept growing the business. Hmm. Yeah. The reason I think that is because I think that through the path of growth itself and not just serving the clients, but that's been really informative to me to help understand that what the client's brain is thinking. It's also been really helpful to hire other people to work on these projects with me. Um, I've made my kind of first three contractors contracting hires and it's been a big plan. I think, I think if I had ramped up sooner, I think I would have been able to do it while still learning. And like, I, I believe in strongly, like before you hire somebody, something, you should know how to do it really well. Um, in, in terms of, in terms of your team, if, if that's the focus of your company. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I wish I knew a bit more. Um, I wish I knew, I knew a, a bit more and had brought those people in earlier because I think it would have just accelerated my pace and I would still be where I'm at now or maybe even a better spot. Hmm. Yeah. And what, what excites you now as you're going forward with um, your own company? Like, What's the next like thing that really excites you? Yeah, for me, I think I have to make a decision. It's like, uh, you know, is this just a business that I'm doing to, to do for a few years and enjoy or is it going to become something I run my whole life? Is it a lifestyle business where, you know, I just... I run some projects. I have some writers inside. Maybe I even take on another full-time job at some point. Uh, is it, do I keep traveling, for example, to Nairobi next? Or do I, you know, do I go back and join another company at some point? My, my gut tells me that this is worth investing in. And I, I really do like running a company. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to play that out as long as I can. Mm-hmm. I think it's just different forms of dealing with it sometimes. And what motivates you to deal with all the difficult things? Too? Uh, the number one thing for me has been flexibility to do what I want. It's been to break out of nine to five. Um, I really think that the nine to five workday is, and this is no hot take by any means or even controversial, I think given current dialogue, but it's like, especially in knowledge industries, I don't think nine to five works. I think, you know, it's already been proven. You only really have max six month productive hours a day. Um, I also think that working five days a week in general, like, you know, I'm flexible with this, but I think it's overrated. Um, I think that we, if I invested, I, I actually, I mean, I, I do this as much as I can, but every time I just take a four day work week, I just feel so much better. I feel more productive. I feel healthier. I feel like my sleep's on a better pattern. Um, I mean, hump day is real. You, you, you know, you just feel like the week's still only half over. Um, I think we need to make things easier for ourselves. We're going to actually get more work done. Um, and I think it's in companies' best interest to invest in the health and the well-being of their employees. I think they'll find much better results and productivity. Yeah, I can't uh, agree with you more. Yeah, it's been a constant weird struggle as you like when you're running your own thing where you, you always, I at least always felt like you're never doing enough. You're never doing enough. But then when I look back on like the hours I'm actually committing, it's like, mm. I really only, I really only have energy for like 20, 25 hours. <laughs> and then after that, it's just all trying to like, eke a little out, something out just squeezing it out and it just really never really ends that well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you said the you know the short work week isn't a hot take but I'm, then i'm curious what do you think is a hot take what's something that you believe in that you think just goes against conventional wisdom totally mm-hmm. i'm still trying to figure out if i ultimately believe this but some things i'm contemplating and like for knowledge workers basically get rid of offices um, another thing I think about is um, is honestly like three day work weeks, um, and I think that's that's definitely tougher to imagine. I think the other thing that I'm ultimately trying to figure out is is um, across time zones because that's kind of an experience I'm having these days, and, and more so soon is. How do we not get so preoccupied with having everyone in the same room at the same time? I think I'm really interested in like asynchronous communication and how maybe it could be more effective. 
Um, the other thing I really think is destructive to workplaces is Slack. I was all the rage for Slack for a while, and then I just realized my life is so much better without it. Uh, I've been invited to so many Slack groups. Um, Slack, to me, feels like a distraction from work. Um, I think if something's so important that you need to consult someone else about it, like you must be able to send an email, and people can read it on their own time. Um, Slack seems to convey immediacy. Uh, but what's interesting is like people seem to like, I think I just read some research yesterday, but like when you get interrupted doing a task, you may as well like lose almost half an hour on working on that task in terms of your effectiveness. So uh, the other thing I wonder about too is the open office thing. Like I wonder if we should go back to cubicles or like offices, like, you know, open office, I find people just talk to each other all the time. So it's something I think about. Oh yeah. Thank you. It's very refreshing to hear that because I always feel like the crazy person doesn't tell, that just tells my friends that maybe you should be considered like, have you tried going on airplane mode to be maybe more productive? And, totally. Um, yeah, even at my own WeWork, I try to find the space that just stares randomly out an o- a window instead of actually looking at people so I can feel like I'm not in an open office environment. But yeah, those are definitely things like I, I love talking about and writing out and believe in. Best, invest, best investment for me personally this year, I've always... Don't love to buy a lot of expensive things, but I finally did invest in some like good Bose headphones. Mm. It's game changer. 100%. Game changer. It's, I can't believe the difference. <laughs> Unfortunately, as we have to kind of wrap up on the time, because you're such a busy guy with so much going on. Oh, man. Um, some final kind of questions I, I'd be curious to ask is, if if you were to imagine the 20-year-old Jackson, probably still at University of Western Ontario, um, and if that 20-year-old were to look at what you're doing right now, what do you think the emotional reaction from that 20-year-old would be? Absolute disappointment. No, I think, um, you know, I think I, I'd like to think I'd be proud of myself because I had always wanted to run my own company. I just didn't, I remember when I was 20 years old, I had a different path in mind. I was going to, I actually wrote out this future resume, which I still have for posterity's sake. And I, I, I laugh at it, but it was like, I'm going to go work at, you know, McKinsey and company. And then I'm going to go work at the United Nations. And I'm going to go work for the government of Canada. I had all these big institutions in mind. And I had like this degree I wanted to do at like Harvard or Oxford, like all these different names. And I think the more that I've, I've gone into that, um, and analyze a lot of those companies. Like, I don't think a lot of these companies, amazing companies, amazing universities necessarily have better people than anywhere else, smart people or whatever. Um, I think what they've created is great processes, but I think that there's no reason why a lot of small organizations can't compete and maybe actually have a better potential for innovation and have a better potential for disruption. I think where I sometimes struggle is I've, I've chosen a less institutional path um, away from a lot of these larger organizations and away from the message, um, the control of the message. And um, I sometimes wonder if I'd be more effective in one of the big ones, but I doubt it a lot. Um, I feel like a lot of the big firms, if you go and work for them your first few years, not really doing much. And even if you do get in a position of some authority after 10 years or even more. Um, I don't know if it's always lasting. I feel like it takes so much effort to shift those, uh, to shift those large organizations. Um, whereas I still see a lot of value coming from smaller ones. I think the, the growth curve is higher and I think the learning curve is higher, um, you know, relatively. And, and I, you know, I really respect, you know, ultimately the path I've taken. It's, it's been hard sometimes. It's been uncertain. It's been nonlinear. It's been ambiguous. It's been now multi-continental. It's been tough and trepidatious, but um, I would recommend anybody that's considering to take a chance to, to do so. Hmm. And so what kind of advice do you wish you could have given to a 20 year old self? If you could. Um, well, 20 year old self still university, probably drink less at Western. Um, that's probably one of them. Um, second though, I would say is don't be in a rush to do everything. Like in twenties, you have more time than you think. It sometimes feels like things are going really fast and, um, but you have a lot of time. I sometimes wish I spent a bit more time just honestly, yeah, just being calm. 
um, because I, I have had moments of of a lot of pain, a lot of stress. And I think I would invest in your emotional foundation first. Other foundations like the foundation of your mentality, your skills, your your financial foundations, these things can all come a bit later, but make sure your emotions are good. Um, be resilient, focus on, you know, staying, building that resilience. You, you know, you can feel the pain, but you build up your capacity to come back from it. Um, feel really deeply. I think everyone should invest in meditation. Um, and I'd say invest in my body. Um, I didn't really do a lot of exercise until the last few years. Um, university, I, I remember I, I remember going to the gym for a few months and that was it. Um, I just kind of let it go. And now I spend a lot of time hiking and biking and, well, you know, walking and swimming. And, and it's my health feels great. Um, it just makes everything better. You sleep better. Uh, you look better. You feel better. Um, you just take care of yourself because you got... You got a long way to go. Your 20s aren't a sprint. You're going to change way more times than you think you are. It seems like everybody I know who's now kind of, I guess in their mid to late 20s and sort of in my my age group right now, like people just started to realize like, oh yeah, like I don't have to like bust, you know, my butt all the time just to kind of get where I want. If I just work hard steadily, um, I could probably still get where I want. And I also don't have to do things the way that they were necessarily prescribed to me or told to me. Um, I can make changes. I can change sectors. I can change jobs. I can change disciplines. I can move. Um, I can, you know, break up with that toxic person or that toxic friend or that family member. Like you have control of your life. And I feel like for me, like taking control of my life is the biggest thing that I've done to to feel better and not to do a lot more. And I, and I think, you know, any young person who's 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 worried about that or about their future, like just think about how can you remove sources of negativity now and focus on the positivity you have now so that you can go the go the distance go the journey awesome no that's uh that's a good good advice to give for to yourself and to i think a lot of the young people who listen to the podcast jackson is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you wish we kind of covered I know you have uh, a the entire history of humanity <laughs> uh, yeah future of artificial intelligence i it took forever the, the only things i i'll just recommend a couple resources to look at mm. Um, one is if you are interested at all in, in learning more about AI or you're interested in a career in AI and machine learning, um, Daniel didn't mention this, but there's a there's an ebook that I worked on. It's totally free. Um, it's called the Ultimate Machine Learning Interview Guide. 25,000 words, tons of good examples. If you have any interest in getting a career there, um, Springboard also offers courses in this. Um, I have no direct paid affiliation with them. I just genuinely think it's a it's a very cool resource. Um, so check that out if you're interested in AI. Um, the other thing I'd recommend is if you're interested in freelancing, um, check out Wave. Um, Wave is Wave is a Toronto-based company. They have a lot of good resources in freelancing um, on how to like start your business. Uh, they also have free uh, free accounting software. They are a client of mine, um, so I do have to disclose that. But um, I, I honestly think it's great. It's great. It's like it's great. It's free. There's a lot of good stuff. Um, and if you're ever interested in writing a blog, uh, the last thing. Uh, Resource I would I would recommend is a guy named Ryan Robinson. His website is ryrob.com. Really good advice on starting a blog. Lots of free resources. Lots of good templates to get started. Um, it's easy. It's fast. Go take control of your life. Start what you need to and uh, and make those changes. Don't be afraid because you've got a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity and a lot of things to fall back on. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks for another Jackson and thanks for coming to the podcast to share your story with myself and my audience. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, brother. Okay, talk soon. Bye. All right, thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It Hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can 
subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, everything will still be free. It's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way, so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.